Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, we're going to continue in our study in Mark. There's an island called the island of Tana. And a group of about 30,000 tribal people live there. They have, since the 1970s, they actually the 50s and then the 70s, they um, have been looking for a Messiah to come, and they believe they found him. They believe he's Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. So this is a true story. It's not made up. Uh, one day he visited there, I think 1974 he visited, and there had been a prophecy that a man with really white, white skin would come and he would bring many gifts. And of course, since he was with the British Empire, then he has many gifts he brings. And actually, that even went back to um, world, after World War II. There was a man that came on the island named John. And uh, he was a GI. He was part of the uh, soldiers that were over there, the, the military that was um, stationed over there. And so there was, I think there was probably around 15,000, 20,000, if I remember correctly, troops that went through that area in World War II. And they had a lot of things they brought as gifts. And they actually have a day over there called the John Frum Day. It's on February 15th. And they, his name is John Frum because it was John from America. That's what he would tell people. I'm John from America. So they celebrate John Frum Day. And they uh, have American flags. And so they kind of have a mixture of like a British American religion. It's kind of strange. But the an interesting thing is these men and these women over there in this tribal island are looking forward to the day when Prince uh, Philip will come and he'll actually live there with them. And they think he'll come and he'll bring a lot of gifts. And I think he's like, what, 96, 97? Don't think that's going to happen. And it's, it's kind of humorous to listen to, to think, wow, it's kind of a strange, you know, type of religion. But actually, it's, it's sad as well. Because they're looking for someone to come. They're looking for someone to bring good news of the good things that they can have, material things, really. And uh, it's not going to happen, right? I mean, I guess Prince Philip could come and visit, but he's not going to live there. And he's not going to uh, have his abode there. Not going to fulfill the prophecy that they want. But it's interesting as I, I was listening, I was read that in an article and I was thinking, that's really strange. But I thought, you know what? Every one of us in this world, we're looking for promises that we can hold on to. We're looking for a restoration. We want justice. We want peace. We want uh, things to be made right. And that's what they're wanting. They're like, What's, let's, what, there's going to be someone that's going to come and promises will be fulfilled. And, and unfortunately, they're looking to the wrong person. A temporal man, a mortal man. But we have a person found in the pages of scripture that lived a life on this world that is the eternal God and his name is Jesus. And he is our Messiah and he truly will come back someday. And we trust in the Messiah, Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, we are going to look today at the, the gospel found in a person and that person is Jesus. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask that you will bless your word this morning. Spirit of God, we ask that you will illumine the hearts of 
those of us in here who are Christians and help us to see the truth of the scriptures so that we may go out and live the word. And I pray for anyone in here who is, is lost and they don't really understand the gospel. I pray today will be the day where they not only understand it, but they receive it and by faith follow Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We're back in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses um, 7 through 15 this morning. And remember, if you look down in verse number 1, we said that was the title really of the book there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember the theme of, of Mark here is that Jesus is the Son of God, so he's trying to prove that to them, that he's the Son of God who came as a sacrificial servant. And so he wants them to know that there is a man who, who lived in this world who really was God. He was the Son of God. He came and he lived, he died, and he was resurrected in your place. And that is the good news. And so we learned a couple weeks ago that Mark demonstrated the good news about Jesus in verses 2 and 3 there as he showed that the good news about Jesus was revealed in the Word. And then he shows us later, like two weeks ago, we talked about how the good news was revealed, was preached, I should say, preached through a herald. And we saw that was John the Baptist. And we saw that in verses 2 down through verse 8. And John the Baptist had a, a baptism of repentance. And that was his message was repent. And we learned that repentance was just a ceremony that represented that these people were were um, recognizing that they were sinful people. There was nothing miraculous happening in that water there. There was no special thing that happened to them except for the fact they stood in the water and they were confessing that they were like Gentiles. Remember we said baptism was a symbol for the Jewish people back then. If you were going to be, if you were a Gentile, wanted to convert to Judaism, one of the ceremonies you went through was baptism. And so when they, as Jews, stood in that water, they were saying, I am like a Gentile. I am far from God. And so it was a way for them to confess that their hearts were sinful. And so we saw in verse number four that the description of John the Baptist's ministry was he was proclaiming a repentance baptism that leads to the forgiveness of sins. So, and again, getting in that water, being dunked in that water did not take away their sin. It did not remove their sin. It did not forgive their sins. The idea was they were saying, I'm a repentant person. And he was saying, look to the one who can forgive sin. So this week, we're going to talk about the good news as found in the person of Jesus. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 8 for that. Look down at verse number 7. John the Baptist, remember, he's in the wilderness. He's in his camel hair out there. So picture that. In verse 7, he stands up and he preaches. This is what his, his message was about. He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. But he, the one coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so as you look through these verses here, I want you to see the good news found in the person of Jesus describes Jesus as three things in three ways. The good news is, describes Jesus as the supernatural king, the Righteous priestly heir and the royal prophet. So you actually look at that. The good news is found in the three offices of Jesus. He is prophet, priest, and he's king. I just think it's interesting as you see that. So first we're going to look at the good news declared about Jesus that declares that he is the supernatural 
king. Remember, we talked about in verse 1 all the way down here how this passage talks about that Jesus is the Messiah, or you could say he's the king. He was the long-awaited one. It's the gospel. Remember, gospel is euangelion. That's the idea that there's a, a messenger that's going forward and he's announcing that the conquering king is coming into our city. In fact, we look down in verse number three and we saw that he says there, make his path straight. And the idea of that was when a Caesar or a king would come into a city, they would take the roads and they would smooth them out so that when the king or the Caesar came into town, he had a smooth path coming into town. So the idea is this guy is coming, the king, the Messiah is coming. So there's anticipation, there's, there's excitement in the air. And as they're going out to the wilderness, they're thinking, John the Baptist, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? In fact, Luke chapter 3, verse 15, they actually ask this. It says, the Bible says, as the people were in expectation, they were excited, and they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And so they were saying, are you, are you the one? And John the Baptist said, no, absolutely, I'm not. If you guys want to go to the next slide there. He said, absolutely, I am not the one. I think I forgot to do my phone this morning, didn't I? Oh, sorry about that, guys. Well, you just see if you can follow along. And, uh, and he said, no, I'm not the Christ. He said, there's one coming after me. And so what you see actually in verses uh, 7 through 8 is his response. And you can see that in other parallel passages. It's his response to them when they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? He says, no, I am not. There's one coming. In fact, you look in verse number 7. He says, after me comes he. And in the Greek language, actually, there's a definite article in front of that, which means this. It's kind of like you could say it like this. After me comes the he or the one who is mighty. In other words, he's saying after me is coming the Messiah. You're going you're gonna to see the Messiah. He's going to be here in your lifetime. In fact, he's expect him soon. And he describes the Messiah. He describes Jesus by contrasting himself with Jesus and the Messiah. So notice his contrast in verse number seven. He says this mighty one, this, this Messiah is mightier than I. And so when he considers the Messiah, he sees himself as weak and lowly and the Messiah as worthy and great. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 7, he says, The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And back in this society, if you were a slave, the lowest thing you could possibly do in someone's home was to go to the master and untie his sandals and then wash his feet. And in fact, if you were in a Jewish home and you were a Jewish slave, you didn't even have to do that. Because that was for the lowest of low slaves. And so the idea is he's saying, listen, when I consider this Messiah, when I consider this one to come, I consider him and I see myself as lower than the lowest. So here you can see his humility. And the reality is when we truly understand Jesus, like if you actually get in the Bible and you actually understand who Jesus is, it gives you a correct perspective on who you are. You understand how low you truly are, how unworthy you truly are. A lot of us have pride and like to consider ourselves to be greater than we actually are. But when we understand Jesus, we understand how much we need him. So he's a mighty king, he's a majestic king, but also in verse 8, he's a supernatural king. So John says in verse 8, I baptize with you with water. So he was, he was illustrating the fact that his ministry was just a symbolic ministry that identified people as sinners. So you stand in the water, you get dunked under, you come up, and you say, you're saying, I'm a sinner. But he's saying, listen, 
there's someone that's going to come after me. And it's not just ceremony. It's not just symbolic. It's supernatural. He actually is going to change your life. He's going to change your life. He's going to forgive your sins. Now, getting in that water didn't forgive sins. And you might say to me, well, how do you know that? Well, we talked two weeks ago kind of about that in verse number four, where we said, actually, when he says there that, um, that John appeared baptized in the wilderness, proclaiming a repentance baptism, we said, actually, it's better to read it like this, that leads to forgiveness of sins, because the idea is that Jesus is the one who forgives sins. The other idea there is John the Baptist, remember, he, he was pointed to Jesus at some point. It doesn't say it in Mark here, but in John it says, that he pointed to Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world when you get baptized. Is that what it said? No. <laughs> like he was saying, like, Jesus is the one who forgives sins. It's not getting the water that takes away your sin. It's not me, John the Baptist, that can forgive your sin. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so J- John was very clear that this Messiah would be a Messiah that would be supernatural. And he would baptize in verse 8, you with the Holy Spirit. I remember sitting down with a young man um, in a public school. We were in the hallway and I was able to uh, have a Bible study and a gospel uh, time in that school. I remember sitting down with this young man and talking to him about his soul and asking him, you know, do you know for certain that your sins are forgiven? And how do you know for certain? And he said, well, I know because I was baptized. And he said, my church taught me that if I get baptized, then that's, you know, and he was very confident his sins were forgiven because he was baptized. It was so sad. And I don't know if he just misunderstood his church or if his church actually taught that. But the reality is, if you were baptized as a baby, or if you were dunked under some water or sprinkled with some water or poured with some water, it just got you wet. It didn't do anything for you spiritually. Because you must actually have the baptism of the Spirit, which the idea is that Jesus' life and death and his resurrection must be applied to your heart by the Spirit of God. And so that's what Jesus brings. So baptism does nothing to remove your sin. It's like a wedding announcement, right? The wedding announcement does not marry you, right? It, doesn't declare, it just declares that you are married. It, shows you, it tells people the reality of something that will happen or has happened happened. So John the Baptist was preaching that the Messiah's work was was not just temporal and humanistic, but actually it was a spiritual rule and reign. It was supernatural. Now I could actually spend this the rest of this message and maybe actually the next five weeks going through the New Testament and talking about what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's it's a pretty big topic. It's a confusing topic for a lot of people. There are a good number of churches that teach that the baptism of the Spirit happens and then a person speaks in tongues and the idea there is some people consider that you have to seek the baptism of the spirit and then you can speak in this these tongues well and i can't get into all that right now i'll say this first and that is that in the acts when someone spoke in tongues they actually spoke a different language so they actually were speaking a real language and the idea was in order to communicate the gospel quickly at that time, God gave a gift to people to be able to actually be able to communicate the gospel in another language. And so if someone was from one um, group that spoke this language and you were from another group that spoke a language, God could actually gift you to do that, right? 
And, 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 there, and there's no connection in, in uh, Christianity and the rest of the New Testament with the idea of baptism, baptism of the Spirit, and speaking in tongues. In other words, the idea is, is that ba- the, uh, speaking in tongues is actually a one-time event that happens when you become a believer. And the, and the church was gifted with a lot of gifts. There was gift of prophecy and other things like that. And it's my belief that, according to the Scriptures, what I believe the Scriptures teach, that some of those went away and they're not something that's present with us right now. There are gifts that God gives us that are present with us. But the baptism of the Spirit actually is a very, very important and significant um, uh, truth and doctrine in the Scriptures that actually is very important for your life. And sometimes what happens when someone maybe takes a doctrine like this and they start using it in a different way, in a way that actually is not very helpful to the church, then we usually ignore it, right? But actually, the baptism of the Spirit is so important because when you become a believer, when you repent and turn to Jesus Christ, Christ fully immerses you into his work by means of the Holy Spirit, which means this, that God takes, Jesus Christ takes his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the Holy Spirit applies that to your heart and your life, which means that now he takes Jesus' righteous life and he declares you to be righteous. And he takes Jesus' death and he declares that he has died in your place. And he takes his resurrection. He gives you new life. And the reason why, as a believer, you can live a life of righteousness is because you have had that applied to your life. The reason why God the Father can look at you and declare you righteous and has declared you righteous is because that has been applied to your life. In fact, let me put a verse on the screen up here. Romans chapter 6. This is a very key passage for this. Romans chapter 6 says, Do you not know that all of us, that's those who are in the church of Jesus Christ, those who are believers, those who have repented and believed in Jesus, those uh, of us all who have been baptized. So there's the idea. And notice this word right there, this baptized, is an aorist tense. Now, you, not, you might be like, what does that even mean? It means in the Greek language that it happens only one time. It's a point in time, and it's in the past so we've all been at one point in time in our lives, we've been baptized into Jesus Christ. We were baptized into his death. And then we were buried together with baptism, by baptism, into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why do we receive the baptism of the Spirit? What does it say at the very end there? That we might walk in in newness of life. In other words, Jesus' life is applied to you when you become a believer and you're guaranteed forever forgiveness. You're declared righteous for the rest of your life and for eternity, but also you're enabled to live a righteous life. I think about Prince Philip as he's worshipped on that island. I mean, what does he have to offer them, right? And I don't think, he, did, he definitely didn't come up with the religion, so don't get me that. Don't get any ideas that he wanted that to happen. But, you know, we have a Messiah who can supernaturally change your life. So the good news declares Jesus to be the supernatural king, but also the righteous priestly heir. And the idea of heir there is like the son, you know, to come, not the heir like in false. Okay, so the righteous priestly heir. So look down in verse number 9 through 10, and we can see Jesus comes onto the scene. Verse 9, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So Jesus comes onto the scene here really for the first time in the pages of scripture. He's about 30 years of age, according to Mark. And after this, he continues his ministry on earth. And he starts his ministry on earth, probably about two and a half to three years of ministry in this, on the earth. And notice how Mark introduces him. In fact, it's interesting. If I'm not going to go through this, uh, take too much time in this. But if you look at verse 1 and verse 9, you can see the parallels between the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then when Jesus actually comes on the scene. So look at verse number uh, 1, and it says, Jesus, <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse 1, it says, <clears throat> the beginning of the gospel. Then you look at verse 9, it says, in those days. So how did the gospel begin? Okay, it's going to be one coming, and then actually it came, Jesus, in those days. Verse 1 says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so that which tells of his deity and his absolute authority. We look down at verse 9, it says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, which tells that he lived as a normal human. So look at the contrast there. He was God, he is God, but also he lived a life as a normal human. Verse 1, he's the Son of God. And then you look down in verse 11, and the Father declares him to be what? The Son, my beloved Son. In verse 1, he's the Christ. In fact, verses 1 through 8 talk about how he's the Christ. And then verse 9, he's the one that has come. In verse 8, his ministry will be Holy Spirit empowered. And then we see it. Verse 9, the Spirit comes upon him. And then verse 12, he's led by the Spirit. My point of of going through all that is to show you that Mark has set the scene to say, he's going to come, and now he has come, and he has fulfilled what the Scriptures promised about him. In fact, you look down in verse number nine, you can see that he was baptized by John and the people that were around Jesus and even John the Baptist himself were surprised. Now, other parallel passages kind of help us understand this, but John the Baptist was shocked that Jesus would want to be baptized. Why is that? Well, he's the Messiah, right? He's the king. He's the holy one, mightier than I. Why would John the Baptist put him in water and dunk him under if that represented a sinner going in the water. Like, why would Jesus do that? It's kind of like, you know, the, the first lady went over to uh, Africa, I think, this week, right? It's kind of like she was in this five-star hotel, and then someone said, oh, you want to go to the bathroom and go outside? And there's a, you know, outhouse out there. You know, it's like, no, that's not what's proper, right? It's not proper for the Messiah to, to be in the water and declare himself to be a sinner, right? What was Jesus doing? Was he saying that? No, he was not saying he was a sinner. He was saying that he was standing. He was showing and demonstrating that he was standing in the place of sinners. In fact, uh, the passage we have up there, Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, you can see that passage where Jesus says the reason why he was in the water there. In verse 15, he said, Jesus answered and said to John the Baptist, says, let me do this. Let it be for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So why did Jesus get baptized? What does Jesus answer there? Jesus says, because I want to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is sinless, right? Amen. He's holy. He's blameless. Why would this guy get in the water? Let me give you a couple ideas to think about. And first of all, let me just say the summary of this. The reason is, is that he wanted to present himself and God, the father and the spirit also want to present him as the righteous priestly heir. Or you could say it this way. The baptism of Jesus declared 
his righteousness. It declared to everyone around there, this guy's a righteous person. And he is the only mediator. He's the only priest. He's the only one between God and man that can offer forgiveness of sins for man to God. So at the baptism, there were three people or three persons, I should say, three persons that affirmed his righteousness. And who are those three persons, you think? God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. That's really interesting to think about. So let's go through some of those. So look at verse number 10. He, he comes up out of the water, and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, if you go to the Christian bookstores, are, there, are those still around anymore? Okay. Unfortunately, not really. But if you go there, there's a lot of doves. Okay. Now, this verse is not saying the Holy Spirit's a dove. You know? It's not, it's not saying that. It's, it was like a dove. In other words, when the, when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, people saw the physical manifestation of the spiritual reality that the Spirit was upon him. So it was a way for people to see that the Spirit was coming on Jesus. And why did this happen? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, <clears throat> when the Spirit came upon Jesus, it showed that he was the anointed Messiah. So in the Old Testament, when a king was anointed, he had to be anointed with oil. And, and, uh, and so he was, you know, at that moment crowned king. So if you remember David, this happened to him. If you, uh, if you guys can flip up to First Samuel 16, 13, the Bible says Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And what happened after he was anointed king? The spirit of the Lord rushed on him that day. So when they would see him out there, they would recognize that he was being anointed as the Messiah. In fact, especially so since Isaiah 61, one says this, the spirit speaking of the Messiah, the, the one to come, the servant of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, that's the Messiah, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So that's what Jesus did. He's bringing good news. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. The second reason the spirit descended on him like a dove was it was very significant because at that time, if you were poor and you wanted to bring an offering, a sacrifice, you would bring a dove and so if you were, had more money, you could bring a, a lamb. And, but if you, you could bring a dove. And the dove represented righteousness. So as this dove, or well, not dove, the Holy Spirit, sorry, that's the Holy Spirit, descended on, descended on him like a dove, it represented that Jesus was the righteous one. And he was righteous. And don't get me wrong, he was not at that moment, he did not at that moment become righteous, right? He did not obtain righteousness. Jesus has always been righteous because he's God, right? So when the angel comes and says, you're going to have a baby to marry, it's like, you're going to have a baby and you're going to call his name Jesus. He's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. He was already God. He was already righteous, right, before this time. And so when he comes in that water, he is not confessing he's a sinner. He's confessing that he's righteous. The Holy Spirit recognizes that. Then look at verse number 11. The Father verbally declares this to be true. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, we don't have time to go through this uh, verse here and talk about too much about this verse. But the Father basically uses, God the Father uses two Old Testament passages uh, to talk about Jesus here. The first one, if you look in the screen, is Psalm 2, verse 6. This is a messianic psalm. It talks about the Messiah coming. 
And he says, but for me, I have, this is God speaking, I have installed my king upon Zion. So talking about the Messiah. And I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my what? My son. And so what God the Father is saying is that prophecy in Psalm chapter 2 is coming true today. This is my son. And remember when we talk about the son of God, we're not saying he's lower than God. He's equal, right? He's equal in essence to God. He is fully God in every way. But also Isaiah 42, 1 is another quotation that God the Father was using. And he says, speaking again of the Messiah, behold, my servant, the Messiah, my servant, whom I uphold. This is God speaking again. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So here you have two prophecies that say this guy's going to come. The Messiah is going to come. And God, the father is saying it's true. But also he's saying, listen, he's righteous. So Jesus goes under, comes up and it's like, does he confess his sin like everyone else did? No, he comes up and the father says, righteous and the spirit descends on him and just and visually shows everyone that he is righteous but also jesus then goes out and proves his righteousness as he goes into the wilderness now you might be listening you might be thinking what is the point of all this (laughs) what is the point of what you're saying and what's the point what happened in the scriptures here well when jesus stood in that water and he was dipped underneath he was standing in the place of sinners. Think about the hundreds, maybe thousands of people that went to that very spot and stood, went under the water, came up and confessed. I'm a tax collector. I rip people off. I'm a soldier. I'm cruel to people. And then Jesus comes up and people are standing around and it's, this is my son. He's well-pleasing. The spirit comes upon him. And it's like, oh, This guy is righteous. And in that moment, it was representing that Jesus was was had come to in the place of sinners to live a perfect life, to die a death they deserved to die and to defeat death with resurrection. And so then Jesus in verse number 12, what is what happens to him? He goes out and he demonstrates that he's righteous by perfectly obey obeying his father. Verse number 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And so here Jesus is spirit empowered, right? He's spirit dependent. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Immediately after Jesus was declared righteous by the spirit and the father, he goes out and demonstrates he's righteous. And notice how the spirit drove him out. Now, don't be confused by this. This is not God, the Father, or the Spirit tempting Jesus. Clearly, who is tempting Jesus in this passage here? Satan is, the accuser, right? But God did allow Jesus to face temptation and to face these trials. And also, I want you to recognize, this was not the only time Jesus was tempted. In fact, what's happening here is that the scriptures are kind of highlighting these 40 days here as a time of testing and temptation, kind of, a, <clears throat> kind of an extreme temptation, an extreme time of being in the wilderness, being lonely, being hungry. But he was tempted his whole life. Forget, the devil was always after him his, whole, his entire life up until the time on that cross. So why was it important for Jesus to be in that wilderness? Why was it important for him to 
obediently follow his father and, and victoriously obey and defeat Satan by resisting temptation. Why? Well, could, if you look at the screen up here, we have Romans chapter 5, verse 19. This was a pas- the passage that Roger preached on, or I'm sorry, he read this morning. In verse 18, it get, tells us the reason why it was very important for Jesus to do what he did out there in that wilderness and actually his entire life. Because it says, for as by one man, in Romans 5, for as by one man's disobedience, and who was that? That's Adam, the first man. He disobeyed, and from then on, every person after them has are sinners and have sinned. And they were made sinners. And so by the one man, who's that? Jesus, obedience, the many were made righteous. Notice, it's not just through Jesus' death were made righteous. What does it say there? It's also through his obedience. So through, and we call this active, Jesus' active obedience. Theologians call it that. I'm going to read something for you because I think it says it a lot better than I could. And if I were to say it without quoting him, it'd be plagiarizing. Okay? But this is from, uh, this is John Piper wrote this in Counted Righteousness. He says, Jesus is our substitute in two senses. In his suffering and death, he became our curse and condemnation. So his suffering and death on the cross. And his final suffering and death, and in his whole life of suffering and righteousness, he became our perfection. And his death is the climax of his atoning sufferings, which propitiate the wrath of God against us. And listen to this. And his death is the climax of his perfect life of righteousness imputed to us. In other words, it's not just Jesus' death, but also his perfect life that is imputed to us, right? The righteousness that comes through both of those. And so we're justified, we're declared righteous by God. In other words, God says, this person is sinless. Well, how is that righteous? How is that possible? Well, God the Father takes the righteousness of Jesus and imputes that to us, puts that on our account. But even more than that, As we are living the life as a Christian, the life of Jesus is imparted to us by the Spirit. In other words, we can walk with Jesus. We can obey the Lord because Jesus lived a perfect life. There was a girl that uh, about a year and a half ago I remember sitting down with and her mom. And this girl came in, this young lady, she's in eighth grade. And she came in my office and I was uh, the family pastor this church and I did a lot of counseling. That was my, one of my main ministries there was the counseling ministry. And so I sat down with this family and tried to help this young lady. And she was really struggling with a lot of things. She had kind of been taught growing up that you do this and don't do this and do this and don't do this. And this girl had basically come to the conclusion, I can't do any of it. So what she did was she rejected it all. And she was living um, a lifestyle that was not uh, right, righteous and sinful. And she was miserable. She was miserable when her mom discovered some of this. And so we were all sitting down there and I was talking to her and she just said, well, I just decided that I cannot live the Christian life anymore. And I said, well, what do you mean the Christian life? What is the Christian life? And she says, well, I've tried to do right and I do wrong. And I just, I try to do, follow all the rules and I can't follow the rules. And so I just completely gave up and I just can't do it anymore. And this girl had in her mind her thinking that she had to live a righteous life in order for God to approve of her. And so I went to Titus chapter 3, where it says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Like, you can't be righteous enough. Like, you can't be Jesus. There's only one Jesus, and you're not Jesus. And so it's not by your works of righteousness, which you have done, that you are saved. But it's by his mercy. 
And I share that with you. Like, you actually don't have to keep trying because God will give you the gift of Jesus' perfect life. And you should have seen, I mean, I met with her a couple of times, but when she finally got it and she looked at me and she said, and there's a huge weight came off, off of her and she prayed and trusted Jesus Christ. And, and the question for her is, okay, so now how do I turn from this lifestyle? Like Jesus has given me this. He's declared me righteous. How do I turn? It's like the same life that he imputed to you, he also will impart to you. So every day you can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, give me the strength to follow you today. So as we look at Jesus in the wilderness, remember, it's important that he proved his righteousness by living a perfect life and rejecting sin. And notice the suffering he endured and the victory he gained. So just think about him in that wilderness there. He's, he's uh, hungry. He didn't eat for 40 days. His body was hurting. In Israel, the desert was dry. It's, it still is dry and dusty and, and barren. He was alone. Now, we do know angels came probably at the end there to minister to him. But most of the time, he was lonely out there. The only companion he had was what? Beasts. And he was human, right? I mean, he was, he's 100% fully human. So he has the same fears you have, right? So yesterday we went out and shot bow and arrows at this place. I don't know where, Topo Canyon somewhere. And, uh, and they said, you know, if you, if you shoot a bow, an arrow over um, the target, then you have to go get it. Just watch out for rattlesnakes. Like, okay, can you go get my arrow? <laughs> so my son you know, goes over and I was like, hey, uh, there's an arrow needed. Like, I'm scared of rattlesnakes, right? I mean, are you? Jesus was out there in the wilderness, and he would have had the same kind of fears, right? And so think of all the things that he was experiencing while he was in that wilderness and all the temptations that he would have had. And through it all, he did not allow physical pain or sinful desires, sinful temptations, I should say, sinful temptations, lowliness, or fear to cause him to reject his father's will. So Jesus prayed and he trusted and he depended and he was victorious. Sometimes when I talk to individuals like that girl, um, I ask them this question. When you stand before God, why do you think God should let you into heaven? So think about that question. When you stand before God, why do you think he should let you into heaven. And a lot of people respond like this girl did. Well, she didn't really respond that way, but respond. And they say, you know, I, I, I'm trying to be a good person. And sometimes they think genuinely, like, I think I have been a good person. But, the, but as we consider Jesus and we look at who he is, he was the only person that was a good person. And the reality is no person will ever stand before God and present his own righteousness and say, I did a pretty good job, God. I lived a pretty good life. No, that God will reject that self-righteousness. The only people who are in heaven or will be in heaven are people who on earth have rejected faith in their own righteousness and have completely depended upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you must trust that only Jesus is righteous enough for you to have forgiveness in the promise of heaven. And I would say this to Christians, Christians in here. You can rest confidently that you will be with God in heaven because of Jesus' perfect life. 
I was reading about John Bunyan and how he had a time in his life where he was struggling. If, you know, how do I know for certain that I'm really going to heaven? Like, I, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he lived. A, and actually, when he started studying and realized that Jesus had lived a perfect life and that whole imperfect life was imparted to him, he actually gained confidence in the fact that he was a believer that was going, had his sins forgiven. And Christian, I think about this as well, when you are struggling with temptation, maybe you're struggling with fear, and you feel defeated by sin, we need to look to Jesus as the one who can enable us every day to live the righteousness that he provides. In fact, look at this verse up here, Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. It says that we can be filled as believers with the fruit of, of righteousness. So this idea is that you can actually live righteously. You actually can obey the Father. So you can be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through what? Through Jesus to the glory of God. So you can actually bring glory to God. Like you might be in here like, oh, my life's terrible. You know, I'm just defeated every day. Now I'm living in constant fear or temptation and desire. And I, and I give in and I'm given up. But actually the promise of God is that you can live a righteous life because of Jesus' righteous life. In fact, Ephesians 6, 14, we're to stand fastening our belt with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And the idea there is you put on Jesus. You say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you today and live in your power. So, so imagine Jesus in this wilderness and imagine him as he wrestles and fights the temptation. And then imagine your wilderness, right? And some of you this past week found yourself in a wilderness. You are facing strong temptation. Maybe you are facing extreme loneliness or fear. What's going to happen? What's going to happen in this situation? And maybe it felt like Satan had a grip on your soul. Can you come out of that wilderness? Like, is there an escape from that? Is there victory there? Well, I guess the answer is two parts. One is no on your own, right? You can try all the methods of this world. You can try all your willpower and you might be able to get by. But true victory can only come if Jesus' life is being lived through you. It's being lived through you. So the answer is yes, right? If Jesus is the one that is empowering you by a spirit to live the righteous life and to obey him because jesus went through all of that for you you can be empowered to live for him in fact look at this verse up here one of my favorite verses in the new testament hebrews 4 15 for we do not have a high priest that's talking about jesus who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses in other words he knows what it's like he's been through what you've been through to the extreme but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And the power in that passage is that he is with you and he can help you as well. So the good news declares Jesus to be the supernatural king, the righteous priestly heir, and the royal prophet. Look down in verse 14. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this verse here. But it says, John was arrested and Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming. So here he is the prophet 
He's a prophet of God, the prophet, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, notice this. Verse 1 says, in the beginning. Verse 9 says, in those days. And then, boom, verse 15, it's fulfilled. It's here. Here's the Messiah. Here's the king. So, what should you do? You want to be part of his kingdom? Repent. Turn from your own way and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. The answer for us in here, the answer for everyone in this world, and the answer for us is a turn from your own ideas, to turn from your own sinful ways, and completely trust Jesus, the gospel that he provides. And friend, if you're in here and you don't have complete assurance that you'll spend eternity with Jesus, if your faith is in your baptism, and if your faith is in your good works or your religion or your attempt at a righteous life, then you don't have assurance. You can't have assurance. Because how can you ever know for certain that you're righteous enough? And you can't ever be righteous enough on your own. You need the gift of Jesus' perfect life death, and resurrection. So how do you receive that? Well, let me invite you today to turn. Say, you know what? No longer am I going to believe what I believe and go my way. I'm going to go the way of Jesus. And if you're a Christian in here and you're struggling in the wilderness of life, you see no way out. You're like, I'm done. I can't do this. Like that is not true. For a Christian. Jesus is your righteousness. And he can enable you. To give you the victory. To live the life. That brings glory. To God. And you might say well I don't know what that looks like. That's why we have pastors and elders here. Right. We would love to sit down with you. And help you. And talk to you. And share with you from God's word. What does that look like practically in Let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of truth. There is no way that any human could contrive this. What, what, what happened in history with, with Jesus, and then just the fact that it's recorded in this way for us, is just so amazing. We are so convinced that your word is truth. So God, I pray the prayer of the psalmist, lead us in your truth and teach us for you're the God of our salvation. And in my heart, God, I really believe that there are people in this room who are seeking you and they're truly wanting to have that assurance. Am I a Christian? So God, I pray by your spirit, through your word, that you'll give them that confidence today if they are, And if they're not, may they come to you in faith. And God, I pray for us as Christians, as all of us in here, we all face the wilderness times. We all face the times when we're struggling and we're wondering, what's the way out? So Jesus, help us. Give us grace to come to you and find that strength in time of need. And help us to understand and fully follow you. Help us to hear the word and now go out by faith 
can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.